This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. All right, welcome, all of you. Um, so this is the first event that's kicking off our One Book, One College program this semester. So thank you for coming. It's very exciting for us to see you here. So we are reading Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin for this One Book, One College. And we've got lots of events around the themes of this book. But this one, we know you probably haven't had a chance to read the novel yet. So it's kind of an introduction to the novel. So, and an introduction to James Baldwin. Who was he? What was why are we reading this novel? And for those of you who haven't read him and are probably going to be reading him for class, this is an excellent way to kind of get some insight into how you might want to approach the book, some things you might want to be thinking about as you're reading the book. And we have our calm faculty experts here on this panel that are going to do most of the talking today. I'll just be moderating a little bit. And um, they're going to fill us in. So let's start with introductions down at the end. Yes. Hi, I'm Tamara Coleman-Hill. Closer. Closer. Tamara Coleman-Hill, um, assistant professor of English. I teach um, both composition one and two and also literature here at Moraine. Good morning, everybody. I'm Tom Dow. Um, I teach uh, Shakespeare, fiction, British lit, and composition. Hi, my name is Erica Deiters. I teach composition and creative writing as well as a couple literature courses. Hi, my name is Sandra Beauchamp. I teach COM 102, uh, American Literature Courses, and Film as Literature class. And I'm Tish Hayes. I'm a librarian here, and I will just be helping out moderate the panel. So to get us started, um, we're going to just give you a little overview of Giovanni's Room and also talk about the historical context in which it was written. And Tamara Coleman-Hill is going to start us off. All right get organized here, right? Um, I think the, the first thing to be said in thinking about the text in terms of the history is the time period, right, in which it was um, uh, written and published in 1956. Obviously, if we think about America in 1956, um, we were sort of in the midst of, of many things in, in terms of um, uh, social issues and also political issues. Um, we're talking about uh, a couple years after the uh, Brown versus Board of Education um, in 1954, the case of, of integration, the integration of public schools. Um, we're also talking about Jim Crow laws, right? All these things are happening at the time, um, particularly the um, conditions of African Americans um, in the country. Thanks. Um, so I think it's important to understand that first and foremost in terms of the backdrop in which this piece is written. Um, but with that being said, um, the, the book itself got really good reviews in the mainstream, meaning from um, white publications during the time. And I want to just read really quickly, uh, briefly, from the New York Times review that was published October 14, 1956, so very shortly after the book itself was published. <coughs> yeah, uh, the review says, whoever has read James Baldwin's first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, uh, which was published in 1953, so a few years before, or his collection of essays and sketches, Notes from a Native Son, knows him to be one of our gifted young writers. His most conspicuous gift is his ability to find words that astonish the reader with their boldness, even as they overwhelm him with their rightness. The theme of Giovanni's room is delicate enough to make strong demands on all of Mr. Baldwin's resourcefulness and subtlety. 
We meet the narrator known to us only as David in the south of France, but mostly of the story, but most of the story is laid in Paris. David tells the story on one single night, the night before Giovanni is to be guillotined as the murderer. And then, and then the review goes on to talk a little bit about what um, the novel is about. But their comment is that much of the novel is laid in scenes of um, uh, squalor with the background of characters as grotesque and repulsive as that can be found in um, cities in Paris. But even as one is dismayed by Mr. Baldwin's materials, one rejoices in the skill with which he renders them. Nor is there any suspicion that he is working with these materials merely for the sake of shocking the reader. And by those materials, I think they're referring to the subject matter, um, referring to the subject of the relationship between the, the two men. On the contrary, his intent is most serious. One of the lesser characters, in many ways, is a distasteful one. Um, but he goes on. I'm sorry, I'm missing a sentence here. Um, one of the characters is uh, one of the lesser characters, in many ways, is a distasteful one, um, tells David that not many people have ever died of love. And the review itself is really pointing to the depth of the piece, not the sensationalism, and they argue that he's not necessarily sensationalizing um, same-sex relationships, as some folks has, have suggested. On the other hand, in the black newspapers at the time, and again, we're talking about a, t a time in which there was separation between blacks and whites in the larger society. Um, many of the black newspapers ignored this text altogether. Um, many in the black community were pretty angry with Baldwin uh, for creating a novel, particularly during this historical um, period of um, you know, emerging towards civil rights and such, where number one, the characters are all white. Number two, he doesn't explicitly, explicitly deal with the issue of race as he had done in the previous text. So I think it's important to understand his work in terms of, in terms of that larger landscape of um, segregation, civil rights, and then what people expected of him as a young black writer. And speaking of ways we can understand the text, another thing that might be useful is kind of knowing a little bit about James Baldwin as a man, his biography, what, what he went through that might have contributed to the novel, and Sandra's going to talk to us about that. Right. I, I always think it's interesting to investigate the life of uh, a writer um, in order to better understand how they use their life as a well, uh, you know, from which they pull ideas for their fiction and nonfiction. Uh, Baldwin is no exception. Uh, James Baldwin was born at the height of the Harlem Renaissance in 1924. Uh, he was the first of nine children in total. He would never know his biological father, but he was uh, taken in and took on the name of his wife's husband, David Baldwin, who was a factory worker and a preacher. His relationship with his father uh, would provide him with an early uh, conflict that he would continue to try and resolve in various ways. But his father was hard, described as hard, uh, and difficult to get along with, and removed and cold. Um, as a result, perhaps, Baldwin would find refuge in local libraries, and he has said at one time that he devoured two libraries in Harlem by the time he was 13. Um, but perhaps as a way to connect with his preacher father, uh, he joined the Pentecostal church when he was 14 years old and began preaching for three years. He would later say that this event in his life would play a crucial role in his decision to become a writer. Um, and we hear in his language 
that he uses to write his fiction, um, that those cadences that we might hear commonly from the pulpit. And in fact, if you ever have the opportunity to view the recordings of Baldwin speaking or orating, you can hear that influence in, in his life. And I would recommend reading some of his passages from his work out loud as well, and you will hear um, that, that beauty and that astounding power. Um, so after the death of his father, that seemed to be somewhat of a release for him, and he moved uh, at 17 to Greenwich Village. Some of you who may be familiar with New York know that that is, at least at the time, was a place where many painters and artists and free thinkers uh, would commonly uh, live, and he was influenced by that. In fact, he often said he thought about becoming a musician or even an actor. He was creative uh, at his core. Um, but still that need and desire to escape would continue in his life. He wanted to leave Harlem. Um, and after the suicide of one of his friends, um, he did eventually leave and go to Paris. Um, he said he only had $40 in his pocket at the time. Can you guys imagine mm -hmm. leaving the home that you had known your entire life with just $40? to your name, to another place. He didn't even know how to speak French. Um, and so he, he managed to go from place to place. Uh, he got, became very sick once he was in Paris that he was taken care of by this um, older matriarch uh, who would walk up these three flights of stairs in order to bring him soup and make sure he didn't die. He was very thankful for that. Um, uh, but it was in Paris where he began to, to write in earnest. Um, and he said that it was while in Paris he was able to actually think about his home. Uh, he had to be apart from it in order to think about it and reflect on everything that he had left there. Um, and so he published Gotella on the Mountain. Uh, as Tamara said, it was received with rave reviews um, by the presses. His second novel, however, Giovanni's Room, uh, was received well, as, as was mentioned in the mainstream press, um, but not so well by the, the black press at the time. Um, he would continue to live in Paris and Istanbul, Turkey, and Switzerland, continue to write. Um, but he would also make trips back to the United States where he became involved, actively involved, in the civil rights movement. He was a part of the march on Washington. Um, he worked with Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Medgar Evers. Their assassinations devastated him. Um, and he would continue in his life to write, uh, both fiction and nonfiction, uh, and eventually uh, become a teacher at Amherst College, where he was able to connect with young people. Um, he would call France uh, you know, his home away from home, and he received the highest honor uh, by uh, President Mitterrand uh, from France right before his death uh, from stomach cancer in 1987. Thank you so much. So James Baldwin, this incredible writer, um, which is, I mean, in some ways why we chose him to be part of this one book. Like he not only wrote this novel that we're reading, but so much work behind him that speaks to his own experiences and I think speaks to the experiences of so many young people. Um, so which brings us to the actual text that we're looking at, Giovanni's Room, which is set in Paris. Um, a little bit of it set in the south of France as well. So definitely drawing on some of his own experience with the setting and the people, and you can definitely feel the realness of that. Um, and in thinking about the novel, I mean, we also want to take a look at not just the plot, but like how the novel is structured. So I think moving from this historical context, knowing a little bit about his biography, we're going to jump into actually looking at the text itself and how it's structured and how James Baldwin leads us to the story and how he, you know, creates 
some tension for us, and uh, Eric is going to give us a little bit of background on that. I first started reading the book this summer, probably early July, because I had this assignment to be on this panel for today. And I, I read the first few pages and found myself very disconnected from the text. Um, not engaged at all. And I thought, you know, maybe it's because I'm up at the lake house and surrounded by way too many relatives. Um, so I put the book aside, and a month later, because the due date for the assignment was nearing, I needed to, to sit down and read. And I found myself in a quiet spot by myself and did my absolute best to focus on the text. And I found myself again disconnected, a little lost and frustrated. And then I thought about some of the things that I talk about in my composition class and my literature class, which is about the writers and how they make choices. In fact, it's something that's addressed maybe if you guys are taking COM 101 or COM 102, you even know from the grading standards in your syllabus that we address the choices that a writer makes. Um, in my literature class, we talk about formalist criticism and how authors help guide readers' interpretations, how they create meaning for us by choosing images and using figurative language, um, down to punctuation even. And so I, I took a step back and I thought, so what is Baldwin doing? Why is he doing this to me? And I went back to the first paragraph and I read it. And if you have your books, it's awesome. Like, pull your books out. Um, and I'll try not to read too many passages, but just to, to give you a sense of what was going on in my, in my read. Um, first line, paragraph one, page one, he says, I stand at the window of this great house in the south of France. I have a drink in my hand. I watch my reflection. He's in the present tense, right? This is a big observation, right? Setting, and, and, but present tense. In paragraph two, I may be drunk by morning, but that will not do any good. I shall take the train to Paris. The train will be the same. And now he's in the future tense. Paragraph three, and the countryside is still tonight, present tense. This countryside reflected through the image of the pane. The house is just outside a small summer resort. My girl Hella and I rented it in Paris from photographs some months ago. Now she is gone and gone a week. So he's moving around in time so much. And this is where I'm realizing, you know what, this is what's causing my frustration. He's all over the place. Past, future, present, past, right? Paragraph four, which is much longer. I can see her, very elegant, tense and glittering, surrounded by the light which fills the salon of the ocean liner. That was how I met her. Present tense, past tense. That was how I met her in a bar in St. Germain. She was drinking and watching, and that was why I liked her. And then he goes on a little further, and I don't think it's ever really, it was ever really meant more than that to her, or at least not until she made the trip to Spain. So we're moving all over in time here. Finding herself there alone, began to wonder perhaps if a lifetime of drinking and watching was exactly what she wanted, but it was too late by that time. I was already with Giovanni. So now we've got characters, other characters. And I had asked her to marry me, and so we're all over time. You can see these verb tense shifts throughout. And again, this is what's causing the disconnect for me. 
By paragraph five, I was thinking when I told Hella that I loved her of those days before anything awful, irrevocable, anything that happened to me, right? If this were not so, I would not be alone in this house tonight, back in the present. Hella would not be on the high seas and Giovanni would not be about to perish sometime between this night and this morning on the guillotine. And so by paragraph five, we've been all over the board time-wise and we know the end of the story. And I thought, again, this is why I'm frustrated with this text. If you will bear with me. Paragraph six, I repent now one particular lie that I had told Giovanni, but never succeeded in making him believe and that I had never slept with another boy before. Another character is introduced in paragraph seven. I have not thought of that boy, Joy, for many years. So now we're going way past the past that he had already mentioned to when he was a teenager, right? And he talks about that experience with Joey for several paragraphs. And then we get to his family, and, and he says, We lived in Brooklyn and San Francisco, where I was born, and my mother lies buried because she died when I was five, and back to near, and again, all over the map. And, and, and I'm realizing these are deliberate moves on, on Baldwin's part. He's trying to create a particular experience for us as readers. There's three reasons he's doing this. One of them, I believe, it's a, it's a stylistic technique a lot of writers use, which is flashback, right? He tells us, like I said, by, by paragraph five, we know the end of the story, right? Hell is gone. He's alone. Giovanni's about to be executed for, because of his murder, right? Hope I didn't ruin it for you. But again, it doesn't matter because it's in paragraph five, right? That's so he can then flash back and get to the real story. Those bones don't really matter. It's the real story about the relationship between David and Giovanni and the conflicts that are part of it. That's the real story. And so with the use of flashback, he can focus on that awesome story. But there's another reason. I believe that he's trying to create a sense, Baldwin's trying to create a sense of disconnect for us readers. He doesn't want us to feel like we can follow along easily. We want we were supposed to be a little bit lost because I believe that's how David felt. He felt confused. He felt lost. And so he's crafting, Baldwin's crafting the text to create that experience for us. I think there's also a thematic connection. So yes, stylistic flashback also creating the emotional experience for us reader, but then there's this interesting thematic experience as well. On page 34 of the text, Giovanni has finally been introduced to us. Um, David has met Giovanni and they're spending time at this bar this first night. Giovanni discusses time with David when they first meet. He says, the Americans are funny. You have a funny sense of time, or perhaps you have no sense of time at all. Time always sounds like a parade, as though with enough time and all that fearful energy and virtue, virtue you people have, everything will be settled, solved, put in its place. And when I say everything, he added grimly, I mean all the serious, dreadful things like pain and death and love in which you Americans do not believe. In contrast to Americans, Giovanni believes, as he explains later, that time is just common. It's like water for fish. Everybody's in the water. Nobody gets out of it. And if he does, the same thing will happen to him that happens to the fish. He dies. And you know what happens in this water, 
this this time, the big fish eats the little fish. That is all. The big fish eats the little fish. And the ocean, which is time, doesn't care. So we're looking at this issue of time now. And perhaps Baldwin is trying to present a theme, right? What is he trying to say about time? That, that, that we dwell on time too much? That time dictates meaning? Forty pages later, on page 75, Giovanni and David are together. They've had a relationship. They're in the room together. And David narrates, I remember that life in that room seemed to be occurring beneath the sea or the ocean. Time flowed past indifferently above us. Hours and hours and days had no meaning. And so, again, this is an episode. This passage happened before the first chapter, if we're looking at time. And so I'm wondering, is that why the narrator in the beginning feels that it's okay to jumble time together in such a confusing way? Is he starting to realize that time doesn't dictate meaning? And I think that's, that's part of the interpretation, the theme that I'm gathering. Do, do I have one more minute? Yeah, yeah. One more thing. All right. So we're looking at parts of the book. We're looking at how the book is structured, right, and, and messed up to create an experience, to give us some meaning, to add to theme. But we could even look at sentence structure, the way the sentences are built. Again, in some of the longer passages, when he's first talking about Hella in paragraph four, really long sentences, in fact, run-on sentences, right? Commas all over the place, semicolons all over the place. <clears throat> and one critic, Laura McGrath, when she's writing for Americans in Paris, she, she, too, notes this, and she says the sentences are far from smooth. He has lots of qualifiers within them. I had often walked the street sometimes with Hella towards the river, often without her towards the girls, right? So there's lots of interruptions in the sentence. They're very chopped up. And, again, I think this is to reflect a lot of what David's going through. David can't speak with conviction about his feelings. He can't speak smoothly and directly, right? He's in love with a man that's not allowed, right? He's supposed to love Hella and marry her, but can't be direct about that because he doesn't love her as much as he loves David. And so by chopping up the sentences, right, he takes away from that direct powerful conviction that that David doesn't have. Love it. Um, so, okay, I love <laughs> reading with that structure in mind because I think, you know, as I took some lit classes in college, like it's the thing that you kind of learn to do first. Before you know all this stuff about theory and before you even can start analyzing themes, you look at like what's on the page and it tells you so much. So before we, we jump into like some of the themes of the book more deeply, um, does anybody else, I mean, you all teach calm and lit, anyone else want to kind of speak to the structure and maybe what you got out of it? If not, we can move along, but I just want to give you the opportunity. Yeah. Well, oh. My, my uh, insights on the structure play directly into the theme I'm going to talk about, so maybe okay. I should wait. Yes, great. You know, I, I was just going to say in terms of structure, and I hope this falls under structure, um, not only do you get this um, time that's 
comes in and comes out. I think what also happens, which is to me uniquely Baldwin, he's such a great essayist Mm -hmm. as well as a fiction writer. We get some of that essay style that really what I I would argue is some of his own self-reflection as a writer, not necessarily as a character, David, on the issues that um, come up in the text. And I just want to quickly look at a piece as I was going through with Erica. I found a a couple of um, spaces where I think he does this really clearly. Um, in the very beginning, as when he talks about his relationship with Joey that summer and he wanted to forget it and pretend like it didn't happen, and then he became um, somewhat overly masculine and, and kind of um, mean and nasty towards him, um, there's this, what I think is a really reflective piece where he says um, on page 10, and yet when one begins to search for the crucial, the definitive moment, the moment which changed all others, one finds oneself pressing in great pain through a maze of false signals and abruptly locking doors. My flight may indeed have begun that summer, which does not tell me where to find the germ of the dilemma which, re- which resolved itself that summer into flight. I think when he says when one, he's really talking about, it, that's kind of self-reflection, but I think it's also pointing us, he, Baldwin is pointing us, the audience, to those moments in our own lives. And then there's one more on page 20, after he decides to not tell his father what he's really doing in Paris, he says, um, for I am, or I was, one of those people who pride themselves on their willpower, on their ability to make, decision, make a decision and carry it through. This virtue, like most virtues, is ambiguity itself. People who believe that they are strong-willed and the masters of their destiny can only continue to believe this by becoming specialists in self-deception. Their decisions are not really decisions at all. A real decision makes one humble. One knows that it is at the mercy of more things that then can be named. But elaborate systems of evasion, of illusion, designed to make themselves and the world appear to be what they and the world are not. Right. So I think, again, this is a place in which he's in, in some ways kind of reflecting as an author on the larger issue of self-identity and some of these other um, things that come up. Yeah, and I think, you know, you point out the, I guess, joy of reading an author across various genres um, or just reading more than one book by an author is that you start to see themes that pop up across their work. You start to see similar languages. And like with Giovanni's Room and a lot of his nonfiction, the issues are really the same and he's kind of getting at them in a different way, but you only get to see that once you've kind of read widely, um, which I think pops up for lots of authors. But so often, you know, we read the one bestseller or the one thing for class and we kind of move on. And it absolutely is worthwhile to kind of stick with an author for a while. So thanks for pointing that out. Any other comments on structure? Do you want to jump into structure and theme? Tom? See, I'm going to start with a super obvious observation. (laughs) I'm a man. Uh, which really is the theme that I want to talk about uh, today in terms of Giovanni's Room. Um, it strikes me as an incredibly male novel. Um, there are very few women in this novel. Um, and w- when I was, just to backtrack a little bit, uh, when I was in grad school in the 90s, um, I was often the only guy in the room uh, in a classroom full of PhD students who were almost exclusively women. Um, and oftentimes our discussions would surround discussions of literary representations of women, which was very interesting. Um, but after a while, I got a little bit tired of feeling like furniture. And I don't mean me personally, but I mean all the male characters and all the men in these texts 
we're often relegated to the sidelines of, well, they're the problem, so we want to talk about the solutions. Uh, we don't want to talk about the obvious things. And I thought, wait a minute, I don't know that being a man and being male is as obvious as it's often purported to be. Um, and I think that's a lot of what's going on um, in Giovanni's room. Uh, David, our principal narrator, and, and as Erica pointed out so beautifully, I might add, um, this, all of this confusion that is being expressed in terms of time, um, in terms of bouncing around, in terms of changing characters and people and experiences, all of this confusion, um, I think really is David trying to walk, I would say the reader, but I think more so himself, through really understanding what it means for him and what it means in general uh, to be a man. Um, he, he knows he is male, right? He's biologically male. Um, but what it means to be a man is so much more complicated than that and so much richer than that. Um, so starting from his childhood, right, he has this, these competing forces operating on him, uh, kind of the status quo of the culture as represented by his dad, um, who literally says, I want him, to, David, to grow up to be a man, not, and I quote, a Sunday school teacher. Okay. Uh, and his dad models this super hyper masculine behavior by spending a lot of time drunk um, and carousing and having all of these, they didn't call it hookups in the novel, but that's what it is. Um, and then his aunt, who lives with them, basically continues to fight with his dad, and David's hearing all of this. And he says he wants, she says he wants David to become, and I quote, a man, not a bull, right? So, so there's more to it than this overt kind of acting out sexuality, you know, of the bull in the barnyard. Um, and in response to those pressures, David decides, and this is very close, very close to the quote that Tammy just read, uh, that he's going to give his father the vision of himself as a man, that, that he, and I think this means dad and David, so desperately need to believe that he is. Um, and the rest of this novel, we watch David's discussion of manhood and what it means to be a man unfold through all of these very complicated intersections of his childhood, his encounters with, with men, with women, his encounters in the United States, his encounters in Europe, all of this coming together and really culminating at the end of a book where neither David nor readers really have a sense that David ever concludes much. Um, because by the, when this novel was published, um, I think, and, and perhaps today, I don't know that I want to say that there's been a conclusion. What it means to be a white man, what it means to be a black man, what it means to be a gay man, what it means to be a man is still a very complicated combination of the internal, the external, and, and somewhere in that intersection, I think, as a man, I think that's where I kind of define myself. Um, so uh, there are lots of mentions of manhood getting manhood, finding manhood, defining manhood, questioning manhood, losing manhood throughout the entire text. And David ultimately flees from his relationship with Joey because he says he fears, quote, that he will lose his manhood. 
If he continues in this relationship, he will lose what it means for him to be a man. Um, and then, um, as others have already pointed out, he then becomes the enemy of Joey. So he protests too much, right? He goes hyper the other way and becomes very homophobic and he's attacking him and he's cruel to him. Um, another key scene a little bit later on when he has a brief encounter on the street with a sailor who walks past him, a, a man who he describes wore his masculinity as unequivocally as he wore his skin. So this is a man who's very comfortable with who he is, um, but David can't seem to in any way reconcile his desire to be a man and his desire to be with a man. He sees those as mutually exclusive um, because he just cannot put them together. And he says about this sailor who walks by, he says this guy had seen him. And then he says, has seen it. And then he very, and this is a beautiful line, um, really a testament to how Baldwin writes. He says, David would never dare to see it. It would be like looking at the naked sun. So it would just blind him. It would destroy him to actually see it. Um, later on, David continues, and he and Giovanni uh, continue to make connections not only between being a man um, and being a husband, that somehow that is the way that a man is defined, um, but also as a father. Um, and Giovanni remarks that his descent toward his death begins when his son is stillborn. Um, and then I'm going to read a, a little bit of a longer passage to you about how David tries to lay out a plan for, uh, and this gets to Tammy's notion of all this takes is willpower, right? This is a very masculine, right, willpower. I can do it. If I just set my mind to it, I can do it. His plan toward domestic bliss. And he says, I wanted children. I wanted to be inside again with the light and safety, with my manhood unquestioned, watching my woman put my children to bed. I wanted the same bed at night and the same arms, and I wanted to rise in the morning knowing where I was. I wanted a woman to be for me a steady ground, like the earth itself, where I could always be renewed. It had been so once. It had almost been so once. <laughs> I could make it so again. I could make it real. It only demanded a short, hard strength for me to become myself again. I think David understands, and I think as readers we understand, that he doesn't know what in the hell he's talking about. <laughs> that I will become myself again. I don't, I don't think at that point that David has ever been David. Um, I think David has tried to become his father's son. I think David tried to become Hela's husband. Um, but none of, those, none of those shoes really fit on David's foot. Um, and then right after this really profound self-reflection, David says when he returns home to Giovanni's room, he says, his touch could never fail to make me feel desire. Yet his hot, sweet breath also made me want to vomit. That's a contradiction. Um, 
then I think really is that the struggle of his sense of what it means to be a man. And, and the novel doesn't really, as I was reading through this, I'm thinking, where, where are these positive male role models? Uh, there aren't any that I could find. Right? David's father, David, Giovanni, the sailor, Guillaume, Jacques, all of them, um, they're not hopeful. They're not models of men who have reflected on their position in the world, their relationships with others, and come to a self-guided decision of who they are. Um, so I'm just left wondering if the novel is suggesting that social and cultural pressures to conform to some traditional definition of maleness in this novel at least destroy everyone. That trying to live up to those models, trying to become the one-size-fits-all, the not the Sunday school teacher, certainly not dating the male Sunday school teacher, you know, none of those models seem to work. Um, and they're very destructive to everyone, including David's father, right? He's drunk, and he has no self-confidence as a parent. He's always afraid that he's doing something wrong. He keeps asking David questions and never really understands who his son is. I don't think he understands who he is. Um, and I think all of that is, is really coming together in the novel. Um, and, and I'm talking with my students in fiction this week about ways to use a critical perspective, a critical lens, really, to unpack a novel. Of course, all the things everyone is talking about are in this novel, and great writing has all of those things in it. Um, but again, my interest in this case, and in a lot of things I read, again, I'm a guy. I'm also trying to sort out what that means, right? I'm, I'm the young guy who likes to sing and read in a family of jocks, right? So there's this, this disconnect between all of those things. But as I announced previously, I am a man, um, and I'm comfortable saying that. But I didn't live when Baldwin lived, when to be all the things masculine, to be the man, if we want to use an overused term, meant a lot of things. And if you were not mainstream, powerful person, if you were anywhere on the fringe, so at that time, if you were black in America, if you were gay anywhere, again, as David says, back in my country, what we're talking about here is illegal. I didn't say it was frowned upon, didn't say it was awkward, I said it was illegal. Right? So that's a very different conversation. Um, but looking at this, so putting on the pair of glasses, saying I'm going to try to unpack this in terms of representations of men, I think can read to a very rich reading of a text like Giovanni's Room. Did you have something? Oh, oh yeah. Oh. You just look like you're reaching for the... Oh, sure, if we're ready for Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. At this point, if you, I mean, talking about unpacking and... You know, Tom's themes really touch on so many of the other issues going on in this novel. I just want to open it up as let's unpack the novel as much as we can in the time we have left and talk about the things that are really pertinent and interesting to us. I just wanted to add with the idea, this is one of the things I picked up on as well, with the idea of this kind of um, stereotypical hyper-masculinity that's being conveyed in these characters, I think that automatically shifts us to the problem that comes with hypermasculinity, which is this underlying sexism um, in the characters. And you, you see this in the relationship between David and Hella. Um, she's an interesting character because she seems to be this kind of feminist 
free, liberated woman, but she's also struggling with whether or not she's supposed to be married or what role she's supposed to play. And then when she eventually comes home, she's excited about getting married because she feels like now she can be a real woman, that she's getting married, and of course that never happens. Um, but then also what was interesting to me is the relationship between David and Giovanni. When he's in the room, there's a point in which um, he and Gio Giovanni get into this argument this is, I believe Giovanni is working at the bar, and David has run out of money, and they're sort of struggling trying to figure out what they're going to do. And somehow it seems like David's character is the one who's home, and he's either preparing meals or he's cleaning or he's doing some of these sort of domestic tasks. And he finally gets angry at Giovanni, and he starts yelling at him and shouting at him and saying, you know, he's not a woman, he's not a wife. Men can never be wives is what he says. And so he's trying to understand this role, which is an odd role, right, within a relationship with two men, mm -hmm. but understanding what role he's playing or doesn't want to play, because, of course, that would make him less manly as well, right, to be the male in this same-sex relationship that is staying home and doing the women's work. So I think there's some interesting things that come up that sort of makes me look at how um, not only how men are, are, are portrayed in this issue of masculinity, but also the, the underlying sexism that's mm -hmm. there. And even I, I find in the relationship with Hella, David often mocks Hella for being a, a strong woman. Like she'll do certain things and he'll kind of laugh it off like, oh, that's the way you, know, you think and kind of ha-ha, this is cute, you're this cute little feminist kind of um, thing, which is odd to me because it's almost like he's supporting those ideas, mm -hmm. but then when he's in that relationship with Giovanni, he wants nothing to do with those roles. So. Right. Uh, with regard to the, the representation of women um, in the novel, I, I do believe that in a way that they are marginalized. They're, they're put to the side. And in some ways, they're almost caricatures uh, of, of women. His aunt, his aunt who is um, you know, garishly made up and flirtatious um, and kind of hen, henpecking um, her you know, uh, David's father, that's something that really stays with him. And then even the women who are described in the, the cafes, sitting at the cash registers, they're described all the same, uh, painted with the same, same brush in many ways. So they're very much outside. And, but in some ways, and, and Tom, we talked about this, in, in their absence, they're almost more present. They're always there. They're always a consideration because... David is trying to come to terms with his identity. Um, and I think what we, we do see with that struggle is that often when a person is not true to themselves or struggles with that, tragedy befalls that person. I think we see that play out in, in the novel. Right, and I'm certain we wouldn't have to go too far for if anyone in here is a psychology major. Uh, the portrait of David's mother is looming over the mantle, right. always watching, always present, and she's not smiling. Um, and I, and I have to believe, obviously, that the loss of a parent, the loss of one's mother, and then having this very, again, as Sandra pointed out, this very complicated tension between brother and sister, so between David's uh, father and his sister, who are trying to live together and creating this very dysfunctional family, um, again, creates, ha has a long-lasting impact on David's development as a person because um, he really struggles with what that means and with notions of family, and I, I think that's a struggle for him. So one of the other issues that I think comes up and that we've talked about in, in our preparation for this panel was the issue of David's whiteness and of the privilege that he comes from. Um, you know, he's an American in Paris. 
not working, you know, like calling his dad for money kind of thing um, versus um, and both. So Baldwin writing this white man is one thing that we could look at. But then also the Giovanni is an immigrant worker. Um, he's there because um, I think it's Guillaume uh, has you know, hired him on and gotten his papers in order. So, you know, David might be at home cooking, but Giovanni has to be working because he doesn't have any other options. So talking about some of that power and privilege that, that plays out in the novel might be interesting, if anyone has a comment. Yeah, some of the critics that I read uh, talked about how this really was uh, an indictment of really the abuse of people who were starving um, and marginalized by the people who were in power. Uh, the The older more powerful, wealthier gay men in France, obviously, were taking advantage and using and abusing these young young men who, whether they were gay or straight, were selling really the only thing that they had in exchange for food and shelter. And when they were used up, they were discarded, um, and that that really is a pretty serious indictment of those kinds of systems where people are left so desperate, um, like Giovanni, um, who had really come hopeless in despair and was really used by all the men um, who he came in contact with. And then in his desperate act, um, he does end up being really sacrificed in the end. I mean, he's literally on the, they say the world, I forget what it was, the phraseology of it, but the world flipped because you can picture the executioners putting him face down mm -hmm. on the head block, on the chopping block, literally, for the guillotine to come down and cut his head off. Um, and then at that point, uh, there was a, a quote at the end talking about, um, let's see, that he would really feel at that point relief from a very dirty body and a very dirty world. Um, and I think that's a very profound statement at the end there, that that was the only way that Giovanni was going to find any sort of relief. Now, David doesn't get that relief. David has his money at home. David has a family. Uh, David has other options. Um, Baldwin once said that uh, he had to come to terms with uh, three of his identities. One of them was being poor, one of them was being black, and one of them was being gay. Um, and in an interview that he gave with the Paris Review shortly before his death, he was asked about the lack of uh, black characters in Giovanni's room, and this was his response. Um, he says, I suppose the only honest answer to that is that Giovanni's room came out of something I had to face. I don't quite know when it came, though it broke off from what later turned into another country. Giovanni was at a party and on his way to the guillotine. He took all the light in the book, and then the book stopped, and nobody in the book would speak to me. I thought I would seal Giovanni off into a short story, but it turned into Giovanni's room. I certainly could not possibly have, not at that point in my life, handled the other great weight, the Negro problem. The sexual moral light was a hard thing to deal with. I could not handle both propositions in the same book. There was no room for it. I might do it differently today, but then to have a black presence in the book at that moment and in Paris would have been quite beyond my powers. Um, so I, I think that that 
you know, that gives us kind of an answer as to why he decided to use that persona in order to explore um, that part of his identity he was trying to face, come to terms with. Any other? All right, I want to make sure that we have some time to um, either talk a little bit more about the reception at the time, um, although we kind of covered that at the beginning, but definitely want to talk about the relevance um, of the novel today. Um, so we can kind of do both of those things at, at once right now. If I just want to add really yeah. quickly, just in terms of the reception, I, I missed um, stating this at the beginning. Um, but one of the things that's important to note is that American publishers um, did not want to touch this book and publish it. So it was originally published um, at, through an English uh, press, and then after it was published, then an American publisher decided to um, publish an American version. So that, that was, a, 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 I think, an important thing to understand. But in terms of... Um, uh, the way black critics or other black artists during the time, particularly those who had been popular during the Harlem Renaissance, like Langston Hughes, Arna Bon Temps, and some other folks who were around at that time, and also a part of the black presses, the newspapers, the Chicago Defender being one of them, um, one of the issues that they had, and, and they even said this to Baldwin him, himself, that, well, the, the comment that they made was that integration is going to kill the black black businesses, right? So if we start mainstreaming, then all of a sudden the black newspapers will become irrelevant or, or um, these spaces in which blacks are only allowed to exist in would then go away, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so the, one, the idea of Baldwin creating these white characters sort of did that in a way. It mainstreamed the work, and so it was is no longer about the the black issue about race, right? So that was somewhat of a problem. And his his um, manager at the time, or, or folks working with him at the time, argued that that would ruin him. And his response to that, he said, they said I was a Negro writer and I would reach a very special audience because people expected him to reach that particular audience, um, and I would be dead if I alienated that audience. That, in effect, nobody would accept that book coming from me. My agent told me to burn it. So there were people who told him to, you know, move away from it, ignore it, you know, let's not talk about it. And obviously, um, he decided differently. He made a different decision. Mm -hmm. So why are we still reading James Baldwin now? And this, in this book in particular, I think both questions um, could stand. Thoughts? I think all of the issues that we've touched on, the themes, are, are relevant to a lot of us. Um, if we're not questioning our sexual identity or orientation or gender, um, I think we're all trying to figure out, I think as Tom said, who we are a lot of the time. I mean, even as a 43-year-old, I'm still changing and learning and becoming something new and um, I, again I think we're examining ourselves and I, I know Tish you and I have talked about before too a lot of the the mirror images in the book and a lot of the window references um, that where we're reflecting we're looking at ourselves trying to figure out and define define or understand who we are um, that's throughout the text, so I think it, it is for any reader. Those that that theme. Um, there's an, there are also themes of 
light and or symbols of light and dark, where we're looking at a lot of duality and how we are more complicated than just one thing um, that we're that we're dealing with a lot of aspects of our personality and our inner self. And, and something else Tom mentioned was um, external influences, how that impacts our fitting in or our comfort with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I think, did that answer your question? Yes. yes. Yeah, we can. I, I think to go along with what Erica was saying, it's about this, the search for, for search for who you really are in the face of what society tells you you are. Whether that is based on your gender, on your skin color, on your religion, that, that striving to be true to yourself and that struggle to be true to yourself despite uh, what society you know, um, prescribes for you based on those things. That's what we see at the heart of, of this novel. Um, and I think it's based up to individual readers to determine how successful David is. Um, if you look to Baldwin's life, you know how successful uh, really, that the author was in, in realizing that and coming to self-realization for himself. Yeah. I think just in the last month, I've seen Baldwin referenced in a magazine, a woman talking about her own, you know, coming to terms with her sexuality, and then I saw it in an NPR piece that was talking about Ferguson. So I think Baldwin definitely has stuff to say to us, both in this novel and then in his other writings, about not just who we are, but then what society is around us. And he was such an activist that I think it doesn't come across overtly as much in this book. But I think once you read this book and you start to like look at how tragic it is when you have this beautiful love story, like hidden with all of, in, within all of that tragedy, there's this gorgeous love story that's just beautiful. And like, how can we let that stand? Which I think is, is some of the power be- behind his, his writing. Um, so we're about out of time. Is there anything that the panelists wanted to say but did not get a chance to? Um, any last thoughts? Well, picking up on what you just said, Tish, and, and what Sandra and Erica were saying, I think Baldwin just crafts incredibly human characters mm-hmm. who, in their humanity, whatever our struggles are, and, and these are characters who are struggling and who are suffering, um, but also who are, their desires are fairly simple. Right? David says, I want children. I want a home. Right? I want security. Um, and those are things that I think most of us want a home. We want a sense of security. We want a sense of uh, waking up and knowing where we are, right, in the bigger sense, and knowing who we are. And I think the characters really illustrate for us, again, in such a beautifully written way about how that struggle takes so many different shapes and sizes and colors. And, uh, and I think that's why most of us, if not all of us, can relate to some facet uh, of the novel. Yeah, I think that's important, those questions um, that Tom raised or, or those desires. I want a home, I want children. So we're talking about a character who I think, and, I, and I, it may be me, laying my values onto the character but as confused as David is I think in some ways there is some clarity about his desires in terms of um, him his desire for men and I think what's interesting for us today is that we live in a time in which we can see some of these things play out where in terms of our social systems and our legal systems two male 
um, uh, uh, partnership, they can have those things, right, that, that you're talking about where as Baldwin addresses these issues, that's a time where those things are really out of reach, right? They were happening in these dark places or hidden in society where um, there, there wasn't any protection. There weren't any protections um, for these things. Um, so I think it's important. I think that's part of the reason why we read it today, why it's relevant to us, because we see things playing out that Baldwin is really asking for, and I think him as an activist, politically, those are things that he's asking for in 1956. Um, that obviously, um, I don't even know if we could say those were around before his death. 1987? No, mm -hmm. many of those things that we talk about are mm -hmm. fairly recent in terms of laws and marriage rights and all those types of things. <coughs> Adopting children, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, if there are no last thoughts from our panelists, um, would love to open it up to questions. So if we've brought up any anything that you are curious about or if there's, you know, Literary stuff you want to ask about, feel free. We've got experts up here. Yeah. And I have a microphone, so raise your hand so I can come to you. All right, over here. When does the uh, like book take place? Like, what time period? Yeah, I, yeah, I think yeah, it's set in the 1950s, in the same time period, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Can we ask the audience questions? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have something. It's not really a question. It's just um, a thought process that I had. Um, Tom, I believe your name is, spoke about manhood and everything and his question, him questioning his manhood and his masculinity. And I just found it very not funny but interesting that um, his father called him Butch like that was his nickname and I'm like well wow you know a man who is so un well not un but so well a man who's questioning his manhood so much that his father nicknamed him Butch and, and it shows their disconnect and going back to what I'm not sure what your name is but um, James Baldwin's relationship with his father mm -hmm. sorry and how that um, translates with David and his father, like they didn't really know each other, and it's just a big disconnection all around in the book for everybody, really. So, yeah. and Baldwin's father was named David, also. Yes, as Tom was talking, and and as you addressed, this is on page ninety. I pulled over the book because I remember this too. Um, so David was receiving letters not only from Hella who was off and about in Spain, but from his father. And he said, Hella had been sending me only postcards for quite a while. I was afraid her letter might be important, and I did not want to read it. I opened the letter from my father first. It re I read it. Standing beyond the reach of sunlight, which I think is symbolic, mm. right, besides the endlessly swinging double doors, which is symbolic, and then the letter is, Dear Butch, my father wrote. Um, so, again, addressing your, he doesn't really know who he is. Well, hello, can you hear me? All right. Like her, it's more like an observation while I was reading, too, that um, this book was merely from, from David's point of view and his perception, mainly. But then you can see the darkness and how they all attracted these characters, pulled together, because they all had some type of deep, deep, dark, tragic, or, you know, lonely place of existence and maybe that's why they all pulled together. 
but at the same time, like David, or I'm sorry, yeah, David, like his mother had died, but um, maybe in spirit, like they tried to, he tried to like connect to her, is how I felt. But when um, when Giovanni's death had, you know, happened in David's mind, and he was leaving and walking, and the papers like flew to him, mm-hmm. it's like they didn't really disconnect, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just. What do you think about that? (laughs) I think it's interesting that you bring up the mother and his wanting to connect to the mother. And I wonder if that was his draw to Hela Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. is that his draw to women, right? Maybe not necessarily um, for any, like, intimate or sexual desire, but maybe just that woman, you know, Mm -hmm. and that sort of lack of that mother presence in his life. Um, Because he really... I, I feel like he really loves Hella. I feel like he really yeah. loves yeah. women in this yeah. interesting way, but mm-hmm. is not, you know, doesn't have that intimate, or, you know, that desire. Um, and, and I'm not sure if that was the question you're asking. I'm not sure you had a question at all, but I do think that that's important, that connection to his mother, which we don't get a lot of in the text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, well, it's, it's kind of like that, the longer quote that I read where he says he's looking for a, a woman to be that steady ground, almost like a mother earth kind of figure to anchor him um, and I, it, it'd be hard for me as a s- student of literature not to connect those um, I'd be hard pressed to ignore that symbol right of mother earth um, and him looking for this this ability to anchor himself to a mother somehow um, and he's looking for that in some kind of a long-term steady socially acceptable we can walk outside in the sun kind of relationship because as you mentioned, the darkness in the novel is so omnipresent, right? But all of these things that are happening between all of these different men and all this stuff that's going on is kind of occurring on the down low. It's like, well, it's like, it's like the secret that nobody talks about until there's a murder. <laughs> and then once there's a murder, and the murder involves this immigrant, right? So now we can pit the poor immigrant against the guy who has one of the oldest names in France. Even though we all kind of know what Guillaume is like. And we don't really, and I don't mean me as in I'm not part of the we, but the people in the book don't really approve of what he's doing, but they don't talk about it. So as long as we don't talk about it and as long as you don't throw it up in the light of day, it happens, it occurs in this darkness. And that's just kind of part of the world that they live in, I think that's a really interesting observation, you know, all of that darkness. But as soon as we turn the lights on, then all those guys who were going to those bars have to find something else to occupy their time. Mm -hmm. Because now that the lights are on, everybody's watching. Mm -hmm. And when we're watching, it's hard to ignore it. And if we don't ignore it, well, then we can't have it. Mm -hmm. Again, as the culture in the 1950s, um, even in Paris, which was pretty, you know, swinging high life in Paris, uh, certainly versus the United States. Um, but still, even there, their acceptance, their tolerance only went to a certain point. And I think we talked about that a little bit, yeah. Sandra, yesterday. Right. Yeah, even with the title, Giovanni's Room, there's that, you know, implied isolation, uh, a separate, acknowledged, but, but separate, um, and so trying to hide in a way in the darkness 
or away from the sunlight, which is referred to over and over again. Um, and there's that struggle there, too. Um, Why would you choose this book? I mean, in high school, we were, like, reading, you know, like, American classics, like Huck Finn, mm-hmm. you know, uh, not even American classics, like, let's say The Odyssey, stuff like that, mm-hmm. Night, you know? What made this book go on the list out of all the other choices that you could have possibly picked? That's a really good question. That is a good question. I want to say because it's different, right? <laughs> I think it's maybe the unexpected, and I think that's kind of what we hope to do at Moraine is present you with some new material, um, something maybe that you're less comfortable with that's going to bring up some big questions about some big issues and about yourself. Um, yeah, if it's kind of the expected classics that are, you know, in the library shelves downstairs, um, then, you know, big deal. We didn't do our job, I don't think. And I think, you know, it should be mentioned that James Baldwin is, in some ways, an acknowledged, For sure. mm-hmm. you know, American writer that is, you know, a huge part of our tradition. Um, and there's a New York Times article recently talking about how James Baldwin isn't being read as much in high schools anymore, because it's actually a book that is often read, or has at various points been read in high schools. And it's not being read as much. Um, and then shortly after that, there was an organization in New York that had a huge James Baldwin festival. So we're kind of like, you know, right along with the tide, like people recognize that James Baldwin wasn't being read anymore, and now we're all bringing him back. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, I think, you know, not only is he a great American writer that we get to introduce you guys to, and we get to kind of revisit, but it also, this book brings up themes that I think we struggle with um, as young adults, we struggle with as adults, you know, this idea of identity and, you know, as we talked about on this panel, who we are as people, and I, it really gets to the heart of that in, um, I think, really interesting, important ways. And his be- writing is beautiful. So if you are a writer or just appreciate good writing, his writing is just, it's unique and pretty amazing. Can, can I just also add from a political perspective, I think the, the question that you asked is important because you said out of all the classics, and you named Huck Finn and Odyssey and Iliad and whatever else we read, I think it's important for people to understand how things become classic and understand the literary canon and the idea that some group of people somewhere decided at some point this is good writing. And so in our minds, if we don't, don't do further research and if we don't know otherwise, we just assume this is what good writing is and everything else is, is subpar, right? And I think questions that many African-American writers, women, women of color, um, immigrant writers have been really trying to bring and, and very effectively in many ways to this discussion is that, hey, wait a minute. Um, my work is also a good work. Who decided what group of white male where, you know, white men where, decided that this was the only stuff worthy of looking at? So I think that raises a larger question of, you know, those types of political issues and why we read what we read. And I also want to point out, this is never going to be a high school text, likely, right? Um, although James, some of James Baldwin's other works were, are, text that people are familiar with in high school, just not this one for, I think, for obvious um, reasons. I think it's interesting that the the two novels that you mentioned, um, The Odyssey, which is, of course, the story of a great journey and of self-discovery 
um, and of all sorts of cultural forces acting on that discovery. Um, and then the same thing with Huck Finn, um, another great journey. Um, kind of like what Sandra was reading about what Baldwin said about why he wrote what he wrote, kind of like why we study what we study. Um, part of it is that those tales, those journeys, those experiences, which are at different levels, are getting you ready for another journey. And this journey is different. This journey adds a whole nother layer of sophistication and complexity onto journey stories that I think now that you've had the experience of those other ones, mm -hmm. just like Baldwin said, I, c I can really only tackle so many of these things at once. Right? I can't do all of this. I can't jump literally off the high dive into the deep end every time. So you, you were ready then for this journey. Um, thankfully, in part to those experiences. Um, and just just a plug for reading, reading <laughs> literature altogether. When, when, you, when, you, when you, we study literature, like Giovanni's Room, or like Ulysses, or like Huck Finn, we're not just studying the words on the page. We're studying everything. We're studying history. We're studying somebody's life biography. We're studying economics. We're studying injustice and legal system. We're studying everything because everything is connected and we're able to find that oftentimes through that one book or those several books that speak to us. And I think Giovanni's Room is one of those books. That seems like an excellent place to end. <laughs> <laughs> Unless there are any other questions? No, you're moving no. to go. All right. Thank you guys so much thank for you. coming. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.